Voices that inspire the extended interview. Mutaki Akbar, I'm an attorney and president of the NAACP Tallahassee branch. So, Mutaki, you grew up in Tallahassee. Tell me what it was like to grow up in Tallahassee. Tallahassee growing up, I remember, you know, kind of the small town feel. Um, We grew up, a lot of it was off of um, like Jim Lee Road area, Southside area. Um, and then later on, we were off of Lake Bradford in, in that area. So always around the South Side. I remember Tallahassee being, when I talk to people about, I guess, the racial demographics of Tallahassee, I always say it's a segregated city. Um, it's usually like black on one side, white on the other side. And then you're mixed in with different, um, you know, socioeconomic classes within that. And we went to FAMU High, kindergarten through 12th grade. And so that experience, again, was, you know, from, you know, the richest to the poorest as well. Um, but socially, I always remember socially as just being like a great environment and, and, and learning a lot about life, learning a lot about, um, you know, just, just, just growing up in a good environment. So for you, it was pretty. You had a you had a happy childhood here in Tallahassee. I did. You didn't have any. You didn't have any negative aspects of Tallahassee. I didn't. You know, I mean, there there were the you know teenage getting pulled over, teenage you know getting followed in the store, you know those things. But we were always raised, like at least in my family, raised to kind of be prepared and expect um, those type things. But as far as any kind of racial things or um, bullying or or anything like that, I don't remember anything just being like a negative experience. So tell me, you you went away to college Mm -hmm. for both undergraduate and your your professional degree being an attorney. Um, Did you ever think you were going to come back to Tallahassee? I did not think I was coming back. I, I graduated. I knew... I, I considered going to FAMU, um, and I considered it because I was salutatorian of FAMU DRS, so both the salutatorian and valedictorian got full scholarships to go to FAMU. So I said, well, if it's free, maybe I could get my dad to get me a car. <laughs> I could benefit from this this free ride. And he said, I don't want you to. He just said, I, I don't want you to stay here. I think you will have a better experience if you leave. Um, and not just because he really wanted me to go to Morehouse, because he really wanted me to go to Morehouse, but but that he really felt strongly that we should we should leave. I have a brother and a sister, um, so so I did go to Atlanta for um, for undergrad at Morehouse College, and then I went to University of Miami for law school, and then started working at West Palm in, in West Palm Beach, and none of the paths that I was on, that I was on was leading me back to Tallahassee. I applied to FSU for law school. Um, but that was just like kind of on my list, but I had no plans at all to come back to Tallahassee because I always thought it was a lot more out there. Um, you know, again, once you see Atlanta, you compare that to Tallahassee, there's a lot more to do, museums, places to go, things to see. The same, of course, with Miami, um, same with West Palm Beach, even though West Palm is, was small, it still had a lot more to do, um, you know, than, than Tallahassee from what I saw. So I just thought it was a better experience. But lo and behold, I'm y- back. You're back. <laughs> yeah. I came back in 2007 um, for, for family reasons. And honestly, I don't regret it at all. And for several reasons, because of the small town that Tallahassee is, I was immediately embraced. I had been gone for 10 years, but, you know, everybody I grew up with 
or their families. They knew me, and so I didn't have to go through that experience of of trying to prove myself to people, you know, at least initially. Um, I did have to deal with, oh, you little Akbar, or you, you know, Dr. Akbar's son, or Renee Akbar's son. So I was still seen and still am at 44 years old as, you know, little Akbar or, or the kid in the eyes of a lot of people. I'm still that kid, um, but I was still embraced and, and still am embraced because of those roots that I have in Tallahassee. So that was a part of it. The other part of it, I was, you know, blessed, very blessed to be able to spend a lot of time with my grandparents when I got back, um, who, you know, one passed away last year, the other passed away in um, 2019. And that experience alone was was worth it um, to, to come back, to be able to hear the stories, for them to be able to see my son and just experience them um, and, and, and it takes, I guess, being at the second oldest generation now <laughs> to realize how beneficial that was as well. So that that was another advantage. And of course, like my dad is here uh, also. So for, for me to have his support and opening my business um, and, and I really needed to support it a lot more than I than I thought. Um, so to have that support. To, to build on his knowledge that he had about being an entrepreneur and a business person. And to, again, like to spend, spend this time with him, um, you know, even though it's, it's not as easy because I'm so busy, um, but to be able to pop in, to be able to say, hey, let's grab dinner, let's grab lunch, you know, do all of those things with him it is, I, cu- I couldn't do it anywhere else, of course, but that's a benefit in and of itself. Um, so, and Tallahassee also has a lot of hidden gems that that I've been able to find since I've been here. And the comfort, you know, just, just the comfort. My office is in Frenchtown. It's across the street from where my dad grew up. Um, you know, in that same house I grew up, I, I lived in a little bit growing up. And so it's some of the people that's been around the whole time. Hey, you know, little Akbar, hey, Akbar. And just, again, that sense of community that's here that I don't know if I would have been able to get anywhere else. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, Tallahassee's a funny place, you it know. Is. It's like <laughs> I know when I first arrived here, I was like, "Oh my goodness," but it it grows on you yeah. and there is such a strong sense of community here that and and you can disagree with what's going on without it being for the most part, I think we can have civil debate here. It's not always civil, but it has more of an opportunity than a lot of places to I be agree. civil. Yeah, I agree. I think Ginsburg said um, you can disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's, you know, politically, I think it's it's built up a lot more over the years. Um, but but I, I think it's not it's not like a strong divide that you see in other places. And, and it's, again, it's, it's comfortable. And, and that's what I like about it. Yeah. So what made you decide to go into law? A lot of things. I started, when I went to college, I was chemistry, chemical engineer. That was my major um, at Morehouse. Me and chemistry didn't get along. So, but, but I still wanted to be an engineer or, or be in a science STEM background. So I ended up getting my degree in math. Um, at Morehouse, still wanted to do the engineer. I interned a couple summers at NASA Kennedy Space Center. And that kind of turned me away from that STEM background because I wanted to be 
I wanted to do something that involved people more than things. Um, and I and I think like you just got to know your personality. And my personality was more people oriented. I wanted to fix people, help people, do those things. And and my dad was always like, "You should be a lawyer." And and me just like, "Yeah, yeah." yeah. <laughs> but but I figured out on my own. Um, but that was always there. And so I started kind of looking into it. I, I went to the courthouse in Atlanta um, and just kind of sat in front of this judge that was there. He was a black judge and saw what he was doing, saw the things that was going on and was impressed about, you know, watching those lawyers. Um, and I was also disappointed about the um, representation that was in the courtroom, because even though it was a black judge there, Everybody, you know, on one side of the courtroom looked like me and everybody on the other side of the courtroom didn't look like me. And the ones who looked like me were the ones who were in shackles. They were the defendants. And the ones who didn't were the lawyers. Um, and in other courtrooms, it was the lawyers and the judges and the bailiffs and everybody else. Um, so that was the push kind of in college to say, OK, let, let's, you know, maybe pursue um, law. So that, that was part of it. The other part of it, I'll, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I knew that um, with a law degree, I can figure out what I want to do with it <laughs> later on, whether it's going to be criminal law, business law, whatever, but it could put me on the path to be an entrepreneur also. So that, that was the other part of it. And then the path to do criminal law, I, I, that was something that I kind of tried to run away from. Um, because it, it's kind of cliche. You know, you go to law school, black lawyer, you become this criminal defense attorney. Um, but once again, I was just drawn to the the injustices I felt that were in the system, um, the lack of representation that I felt that was in the system. And I wanted to be a solution um, as opposed to just complaining about it or finding, finding what's wrong with it. So... You've built quite a practice. Yes. And you have represented some very high profile clients. What what have you learned in this process since like that idealistic start to where you are now? You're a seasoned professional. What what's your take on where things are and have you seen improvement at all in the in the system? I I have seen some improvement. Um and, and I think the improvement has been there, there's a slow realization that the system that's been in place just doesn't work. Um, so the lock them up, throw away the key, punishment, punishment, punishment just doesn't work. And so that realization is kind of hitting state attorneys a little bit more, saying, okay, what can we do for this person to, to give them a better life or so we don't see them again? And the same with judges. It's, it's being able to convince them to give this person another chance. Uh, when I first started both in West Palm and when I when I first moved back here in 2007, it was a lock them up, throw away the key. That that was the that was the structure. That was the system. And and, it, and it, I think it t- took the community for one when you talk about criminal justice reform and it took Republicans really to push the issue to say that we need to look at this thing differently. And, and there's been a gradual change, not a complete change, but there's been a gradual change and it's a slow change. But 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 I think that's the biggest difference when we say when we talk about rehabilitation, when we talk about reform, but we still have the mandatory minimums. We still have 
you know, the the discrepancies when it comes to what we're enforcing with the type of drugs. Like opioids is, we feel sorry for people on opioids, but we lock up people that's on crack cocaine um, or even meth. So there, there are still some differences that, um, that we see. I tell people all the time, but even today, you know, in next year it'll be 20 years that I've been practicing, and I, I, I still can't get used to, and I think that the minute that I do, I need to quit, walking into a courtroom and seeing nothing but black men in shackles and in the, in the jail outfits, you know, from ages of, you know, as young as 14, 15, that's getting direct foul all the way up. And that's county after county after county that I go to, um, except very few that just don't have black people in them. Um, but but as long as I'm seeing that and as long as I see that and get touched the same way, I think there's still work to do in the system. Yeah. Yeah. So, and how we can change the course of so many young people's lives so they yeah. don't end up in the courtroom situation. Like and, what, where are we failing these these young people? And that that's that's another discussion. Um, and and of course, it's been more of a discussion over these last you know, couple months or so because of of the, the the shootings and everything that we've been seeing a lot more here in Tallahassee. And it's it's a uh, <clears throat> We need to be present as a community. Um, one of the things, and this was one of the things that I learned early on in my career in dealing with a client who um, his parents called me from outside the police station and said, hey, we're about to go take my son in so he can tell them his involvement in this crime that happened last night. So I said, like, hey, wait, hold up. Come talk to me first. Let's figure this out. Um, eventually, like, you know, we got it worked out and they wanted to pay me. And I was like, all right, no, it's, it's what he did. Let him work for me. Um, and, and you all don't have to pay me, but he just come work for me. And I, and I knew he was 17, 18. So I knew he couldn't do much work, but I wanted him to be around me, um, to see me go to court, to see me talk to clients, to see me there every day at eight o'clock dressed up, ready to go. And because his father was in his life, but, but his father was like blue collar worker and, and not necessarily had the time to to nurture nurture that. And one of the things that that kid told me, he said, you know what? I don't see people like you. You know, I see the dope boys. I see the, the guys with the guns. I see the people that's not professional. I don't see people like you. So I had no idea that you could be cool. <laughs> you know, you can dress nice. You can be down to earth and still make money, still be successful, still get the respect for people from, you know, the street people to the people in the courtroom. I, I just don't see it. But he said, now that I do, I know that it's real. And to this day, and that was in 2008, 2009, and I still talk to him, and he's starting a business. He's, you know, he's doing great. He's doing, he got a family. He's doing well. And I think that experience for him changed the direction of his life. And it was really just the presence. It was really just being able to, like, see it, to know it exists, to know that he can do something different. So we we get successful and we move to Atlanta. <laughs> we move to Miami. We um, move to West Palm Beach. We move to Killarne. <laughs> you know, we move to northeast side of town 
and don't show up in Griffin, don't show up in Nims, don't show up at Rickards, and we're we're living our life successfully and not present in the people who really need to see us. You know, and, and that's it's just that simple. It's not money, it's not anything more than I need to see that I can do something different. I need to see that I can be something different. So I think I think that's one area as far as the community being and when I and when I say the, the community, I'm being specific to the black community, like being that village that we that we once were. And you know, some would say that segregation like played a role in well, I guess desegregation played a role in destroying that village. Um, because when we had no choice but to live in Frenchtown, we had no choice but to live in Jake Gaither Park or, you know, in those communities that were, you know, like just squared in or locked in just for the black community, everybody on the street had the responsibility for every kid in that neighborhood. Every teacher had the responsibility for every kid in that neighborhood. But now it's like, you better not say anything to, the, to my kid or I'm scared to say something to this kid. And, and we're not forced in, again, not forced in, in, in the same communities the schools, all of those things that that it it took away that village. And we need to be able to go back to that village in order to, you know, pick up where somebody else is, and I don't want to say lacking, but pick up where somebody else just don't know know where to pick up. And, and again, for, for me, it wasn't me becoming the father for, for that client. It was giving him a different experience that his father just couldn't get, give him. But like he learned how to work hard from watching watching his father work hard. He just needed to know like there's a way to to to, to make money honestly as well. Um, and it doesn't have to be like you know the hard work, get up at six o'clock in the morning. That his dad you know come home tired and all those things. Like there's different avenues in order to do it as Plus, well. He saw mm. the value of education. He saw the value of education as well, right? And yeah, and and being in. And and that and I, and so you know I started on on that path as far as the village. So I think the village is one thing. Um, the value of education is is another thing, and us holding our systems accountable to do what they're supposed to do also. And so I mean, and I think that goes towards that that value of education. Um, you know, parents need to hold these schools accountable. I need to make sure that my my child is getting the education that they're supposed to get. And that goes from what the governor is trying to take away. That that goes to what, you know, the type of teachers that we have in there. That goes to, you know, you know, are, is this test necessary? If it is necessary, are you also teaching these, these other things outside of what's in what's in this test? So everything needs that value of education needs to be important. And again, when we were, you know, in segregated schools, that's all we had. We were all we had. And that's when they would say like the schools were the strongest, um, because again, like that we were teaching these kids even even at a under budget, underfunded, you know, barely had a chair to sit in institution. Education was key, and those teachers in those schools knew that. So when we look at the system, such as the educational system, we need to make sure that we're not getting less than what we're supposed to get. The school to prison pipeline is real. Is, is very, very real. I see it every day. So the suspensions, the expulsions, without any type of rehabilitation at all, without anything in place to make sure that these kids, you know, find a way from whatever direction that they're going in, is what's helped 
I guess, like driving the criminal justice system because it's literally a pipeline. It's literally you get in trouble in school. I'm going to expel you. Next thing you know, they're getting arrested. Next thing they know, they're going to end up in jail or in prison. Um, so it's, it's making sure these systems that's in place that's supposed to do what they're supposed to do, as well as the community, as well as the family. Like if we do all of those things, I think that's those are the steps that we need to take. But it's not simple because <laughs> if it was that simple, I, you know, it, it would be done. But there needs to be a short term look at it and a long term look at it in order for us to make these changes. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, and I think back when schools became desegregated, how invited in were those black parents. And so many teachers of color were no longer allowed to teach. So we created a different environment. Yes, you're welcomed into this new school, but we're not going to really provide you any sense of who you are in these schools. Right. And that, you know, that just becomes a challenging place then. Right. Right. I mean, and welcome is probably, you know, used very loosely, but but you're right. It was you come to this side of town in our environment um, as opposed to white children coming to, to the black side of town in that environment. Um, but again, yeah, so now not only do you have to you know, get bus from you know across town, um, but and and get looked at as if you don't belong. You have to deal with all the social issues, but you just don't have people that that for the most part. And I'm sure there were exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, that just cared about you the same way that those those the teachers that were where where those kids came from actually cared. And but like i think i think teachers now they go into the profession because they want to teach they they go into public schools because they want to teach kids in public schools um but i think the system intentionally right now what we're seeing um you know taking away their freedom to teach what they want to teach they're scared to pull a certain book off the bookshelf um because they could get get suspended or whatever for that you know, all these things that are taking away the power that teachers have, which take away the power that these kids have, you know, to, to freely learn and to freely, freely teach, they go hand in hand. And and now, again, if, if, if great teachers are being removed or just don't have the energy or just scared, then that completely, you know, it, it's going to trickle down to the kids and, and make what we're seeing a lot worse in the next few years. Yep. And of course, which kids get the most impact of that? It's going to be black kids. <laughs> it's going to be black kids. I mean, because e- even though, you know, in the, the system itself is not majority minority yet, but it's, it's getting there. Um, but black kids, because of, you know, generational wealth and systemic, whatever, you know, however you put it, depend on public education. I don't care how many vouchers you throw at them or throw at us. You know, unless you're at a certain level, we depend on public education, um, whether it's as a babysitter, whether it's as, you know, what, whatever it is, black communities depend on public education. And and that's my issue with the voucher system also. I mean, I, you know, kind of shift to that and shift to some of these policies that's in place that's that's trickling, that that's, you know, kind of knocking our public education out and knocking education out. Um I think that voucher system is dangerous. 
and and this is somebody who has a voucher for for my for my for my son um but it's dangerous because it it pulls money away from public education and so if there was a way to do it where public education dollars are not getting taken away then okay like give somebody that that opportunity but the way that it was sold to us was mis- very very misleading um, because it was like now your kid could go anywhere that they want to. Where who's going to buy my kid those clothes to compete with the other kids from these neighborhoods that can afford name brand everything? Who's going to afford to you know who's going to pay for the transportation to go across town? Who's going to pay for this trip? Who's going to pay for for the comfort level that they're going to need? You know the same things that desegregation did. Why volunteer for that, <laughs> for that, for, for those same things to happen? Number one. Number two, all the private schools went up on their tuition because of the school vouchers. So now they're making more money um, because of school vouchers. And even though you do get a supplement, but now like whatever you might have to pay in addition to is now higher because it still want to be a cutoff for those people on a lower socioeconomic level, which tends to be minority kids. And so now you're sticking or you're you're pretty much captivating these kids in public schools and and defunding the public schools all at the same time, which is, again, is is dangerous. Um, And you're going to lose teachers because of, you know, these restrictions and limitations that you're putting on them. And because you're not going to be able to eventually not going to be able to compete with the pay from either bigger school districts and richer, richer districts, um, and also now private schools that's going to be able to pay teachers more because of the school voucher system. So it's dangerous. Yep, I agree. We don't ever think about the long-term impact of these things, what yeah. it does to our communities, how they – if you have more kids in schools that are not – healthy places because they've been so denied resources, the best teachers. So they go through it. They're not properly educated. Then they hit the streets. They don't have a sense of a future. We're just creating that pipeline that you're talking about. And it's so depressing that we don't seem to learn these lessons. We don't. I I think many people just don't care. (laughs) Um, because if it doesn't affect your community, again, like just like being able to see it, like my 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 client who could see me and say, "Oh, I need to do something different." If you don't see what the real impact is, other than you turning on the news and seeing it, <laughs> but even then, you could say, "Oh, that's three two three oh four. Good thing I live in three two three twelve. Good thing I live in three two three eleven, or wherever else that these behaviors don't seem to happen in." then you're, you're removed from it. And now what's important to you is only what's important to you. So does my taxes change? <laughs> um, do I need to, to spend more on X, Y, and Z? Like, is this impacting me directly? And if it's not, then... It's not my problem. It's not my problem. It's their problem. <laughs> and and they, they must don't know how to behave. Look at those animals over there. Good, again, good thing I don't have to come south to buy 10 to, to have to deal with it. Yeah. Okay, we could be here for hours discussing this, and this is hard stuff and um, not easily solved. But I do have to ask you one other question. What made you step up and be a part of the NAACP? That's a great question. So I went from 
being just like I, I paid a life membership some years ago, never went to a meeting, you know, maybe gave a check here and there um, to being the president. And I said no. I was asked a few times to be president just because of, you know, the platform and my advocacy over the years. Um, and I was just like, yeah, no, you know, I, I, I think NAACP, they have their role, but that's not quite my thing. And then, you know, 2020 uh, with the, um, you know, the protests and everything that was going on. And they had a they had a platform in that. Um but but not not as, as loud as of a voice that I thought they should have. So that that was part of it. The other part of it, like the change that I thought we needed to see as a country, I didn't think Mutaki Akbar, Attorney Mutaki Akbar, can just like be out there advocating and it just get done. Um, so I said, all right. So maybe if I if we join forces, pretty much like if I use that platform, um, they use the work that I've already been doing. And, and me using kind of the this generation's method of advocacy as well um, to get it done, that can push the organization forward, um, especially on, on the local branch. And I think we've been successful in some ways in doing that. Also have a lot of work to do as well to get it done like as, as an organization. But I, I, I saw it as, as bringing the kind of the old guard with the new guard and, and finding ways to keep the NAACP relevant because it's an important organization. And, you know, because the, the way that it's broken down kind of nationally, then state, then local, local branches, I think it's important to have an NAACP branch everywhere in order to be able to be a place where people could come to, to, to advocate for them, and also, you know, be aware of the issues and speak out on the issues and keep them in, 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 out front for people as well. So so all of those things were the reasons why I became a part of it. I'm still learning the job. <laughs> it's my third year in. We need bodies, we need help, you know, in all in in everything that we do, but I, I still stand by that it's an important organization that that has a very very important role in 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 you know, social policy in um, you know, black de- economic development. And in the p- political sphere as well, we have an important role to make sure that our voices are heard in the community. And it such a, has such a historic yeah. um, significance in this country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just has played such an important role. Um, mm-hmm. It's hopeful to see it kind of uh, have a rebirth yes. and, and relevance that, that it needs to have. I agree. Well, we've we've talked a lot. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of great material from you to create a spot from. And I guess I just want to leave it with you. Like, how do you stay inspired in the work you're doing? You're doing hard work. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure it's often rewarding, but mm-hmm. there must be days you go home and you go, how do I change the dynamic here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I obviously joining organizations like the and AACP um, is important, but you know, I just like how do you how do you stay inspired in the work you're doing? It's it's um, I think looking to the generation, the next generation, and so now it's been my son. You know, I have I have a six year old son, and wanting him to live in a different world, wanting him to live in a world where it doesn't matter what school he goes to in the city 
you know, what he looks like, what car he's driving, like any of those things, almost similar to like like me growing up. You know, we could go to any side of town, any party, any neighborhood, and was safe um, in Tallahassee. I want him to experience that as well. And, and 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 be comfortable, you know, just just be happy, be comfortable. The, the six-year-old that dance and that tells me about the cumulus cows and the stratosphere clouds and and just, you know, gullible and impressionable. I want that to be his life when he's 44. Um, so so right now is me like trying to shape a world where that can be his life. Um, and so and I understand that. That means that the community, it has to be a shift in the community, a shift in, in in the idea of what it is to be a man, the idea of what it is to have fun, the idea of what, you know, like kind of what's glamorized. We have to figure out a way to penetrate and, and change all of those things because these kids are his friends. <laughs> you know, these kids are, you know, all of those things. So that that's a part of it as far as like within the community. Um and you know, like the the policies that's in place right now are don't impact me. Like the change in Black history in school doesn't. I'm not in school. It doesn't impact me, but it impacts him. It impacts what he's going to be able to learn and what he's going to understand about who he is as a black man on, on, at some point. And so he doesn't need to think that slavery was beneficial to black people. He doesn't need to think that. Black people who were massacred in Rosewood also inflicted violence against those those people who massacred them. He doesn't. He doesn't. He needs to understand that there were some evils that took place, and in spite of those evils, his great great grandmother, his grandmother, his great grandmother survived it. They were able to to create a life for for him now. You know, even generations now that he can appreciate. So so understanding that I think and I think and, and again it goes back to the educational system it's it's intentionally trying to 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 downplay it to whitewash it so we don't understand our strength. And that's that's all miseducation is about so you don't understand who you are to the point that you can be you know a great person, a a, a great educator, a great lawyer, a great scientist, a great musician all of those things, you, you're not told about that. You're not educated about that to a level, so you don't aspire to be that. Again, like seeing it and being present. So I want to create a world that he is happy um, and that he can aspire and become whatever it is that he wants to be in whatever environment that he's in. And so, yeah. so that, that inspires me every day. I'm Mutaki Akbar. I'm an attorney and the father of Madhu.